Welcome to the Anchor Church Podcast. Each week, we'll bring you the teaching from our central campus. We hope it's an encouragement to you. Thanks for listening. Mark chapter 10, verse 13 and 16. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. But the disciples rebuked them. And when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms and placed his hands on them and blessed them. I was certain when I was growing up that there were like secret passageways in my house. I just, I don't know if I, you know, maybe my parents read the Narnia series to me and maybe that was the induction. Maybe it's just part and parcel of childhood, but I was sure that every closet led to some pathway to something mysterious and beautiful and interesting. And it couldn't just be a closet. I was sure that magic existed in the ordinary landscape of the home. And because like the parent's room is the most mysterious place in the house, if you're a child, this often meant that I went to my parents' closet and went in my parents' closet and shuffled past my mom's dresses and found the sheetrock and knocked on the sheetrock and just one, you know, maybe I even knocked a hole in it at one point. I was sure that there was a secret passageway there. It was something that I was convinced of. And when I finally found the, um, you know, the thing that you put the laundry down, the laundry chute, there was a closet that if you kind of buried some things, there was a laundry chute. I, I went down the laundry chute and then it sent me to the magical room of the laundry room, which was a total bummer. I thought I finally found it, but it turns out it was just the laundry room. Put my life at risk to boot. Well, I remember as a child a little bit older, I would open baseball card packs. I, I'm, it's sad to say uh, that after I stopped collecting baseball cards, you know, something else took precedence in the kids' lives. Uh, Pokemon cards, I hear. I, I'm glad to hear that there's been a resurgence with baseball cards because I, I attributed Pokemon cards to kind of the moral decay of our culture. Um, it's a true story. I have opinions, guys. I don't have a verse for that one, but come find me afterwards if you want to discuss. But I remember when I opened my first pack of Upper Deck, there staring right back at me was Ken Griffey Jr.'s rookie card. Upper Deck, come on baby, if you know anything about that, that's the card you wanted back in the day. I wasn't too familiar, I think, with like the way that prices were established and valuations were attributed because uh, Brendan Martin down the street, he convinced me to trade two Ricky Hendersons for that Ken Griffey Jr. upper deck. And pretty quickly as I opened the pack, I lost the junior card and I came to regret it. That was one of the things that I've been talking with my counselor about <laughs> ever since. That jerk, Brendan Martin. But the crazy thing was is that every time I opened a pack of cards, I was sure that there was something of value there waiting for me. Whether it's passageways in your home that are magical and mysterious and secret, or the expectation that there's something good waiting for you in a day or in a pack of cards, where does it go? At what point does it disappear? 
At what point does the enchantment become disenchantment? When you have kids, uh, if you have kids, you'll have this experience where you'll look at them and laugh. Kids say the darndest things. But we only can realize that it's the darndest things. Because there was a time when we were a child and we're so far away from it. And so it feels bizarre. But there was a time when we were a child and it was like the things that we said. When does it stop? At what point does it stop? At what point does the enchantment of youth and childhood become disenchantment? Is it 13? Is it the teenage years? Is it after you've heard no from the third person you've asked, a homecoming? Is it after the family moves or a divorce is settled in the home? At what point does the enchantment become disenchantment? I, I think it's an important question. Not just a question of misty-eyed nostalgia, but it's a question of discipleship. Because Jesus says that if you aren't like a kid, you actually aren't a kingdom citizen. So we have to take this seriously. What I want to do today is I want to look at all of chapter 10 in the Gospel of Mark and, and pay attention to what Jesus is saying throughout the whole chapter. Don't worry, it's not a three hour long sermon. Two and a half. So um, it's shorter than that, I promise. Um, but what I want to do is in doing that and looking at the whole chapter, I think we'll be able to understand and, and appreciate what Jesus is doing in the passage we just read. So we're going to be looking at every other part of chapter 10 and then landing there at the passage that I just read. And I think that we'll be getting a greater appreciation for this whole be a kid and enter the kingdom thing through looking at the context. It begins there in Mark chapter 10 verse 1 and 2. Right there at the beginning. Jesus then left that place, it's going one place, leaving another, and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? There it is, okay? Jesus is teaching and like classic Jesus, every time he teaches, like people find their way to him. You know, they're all, he, sometimes he doesn't even want people to show up, but they just like, the word is out that Jesus is there. And so everybody flocks towards and around Jesus. Jesus can't stop from accruing a crowd. The people find their way. And I love it, it says, as was his custom, Jesus taught them. Oh, there's people here. Let's teach them. And so they're in the middle of this teaching and we don't know what it is. I'm guessing it was fantastic and beautiful and compelling because it's Jesus doing the teaching. And right there in the middle of it, the Pharisees find their way to Jesus. Now, they weren't coming kind of for some honest dialogue or not even for some hearty, robust disagreement. It says they came to test Jesus, to test him. In other words, they came to spring a trap, to catch him off guard, to try to trip him up. 
You can imagine it, if you will, with me, that they came kind of like as a rival gang, you know, with their religious, powerful clothing, you know, and everybody knew the symbols and the, the power that they had. And they're coming up with their chest out and their religious knowledge and their questions on tap, ready to trap Jesus. An agenda-driven conversation right there at the beginning of this chapter where Jesus says you have to be a kid if you want to enter the kingdom of God, an agenda-driven conversation. You ever had one of those? You ever heard one of those? You ever felt like you're talking with someone and realized that they're not really interested in relationship, they're interested in proving themselves right or springing a trap for you? It goes on a little bit in the chapter 10 and Jesus encounters somebody else. In verse 17, it says, As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, it's interesting. The rest of the Gospels tell this same story, and they describe him as a rich, young ruler, okay? A rich, young ruler, now, he's young and he's rich. And if you're young and you're rich in the first century, it's not because you hit it with like Bitcoin or something like that. You probably received an inheritance from somebody in your family that has already passed away. So it's interesting that he comes to Jesus and he says, uh, what must I do to get this other inheritance, this eternal inheritance, to inherit eternal life. It's almost like he's surveying what he's accrued through this inheritance, the riches that he has. He's looking over it and he's realizing, okay, I have enough, enough, of, enough of what I need for this life, but there's another element of security that I don't have, and so I need to figure out how to inherit that. And he goes up to Jesus and he does not ask I will follow you, or how can I follow you? What does it take to follow you? He says, what do I have to do to get it? You stare at that closely enough and you realize that Jesus is not, or this man is not interested in Jesus. He's interested in getting something from Jesus. He's not interested in pursuing Jesus. He's not interested in, in following Jesus. He's interested in extracting some type of information that will allow him to get what he doesn't have and feels like he needs. And it goes on, and it's interesting. In verse 21, it says, Jesus looked on him with love. And Jesus could have looked on him with lots of things. He could have looked on him with anger. You idiot. He could have looked on him with disgust. Oh my gosh, it just make me want to puke. He could have looked on him, I don't know, with just indifference. Another one of these. But Jesus looks on him with love. I, I just have the suspicion that it's almost like Jesus is like looking into the core of humanity as we are constantly coming to him, asking for things, asking for stuff, asking for things and not asking for him. Jesus looked on him with love. He says, one thing you lack, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. <laughs> Easy, right? Then come follow me. And the sad thing is, in fact, it says that he went away sad because he had lots of stuff. My translation. He can't bring himself to actually follow Jesus 
because it means relaxing his grips on his financial security. Financial security is good. I think like every one of us would say like we want to be financially secure and I, I want financial security. I want that for you. I want that for everyone in the room for us to be kind of wise stewards to take the opportunities, to seize the moment, to get the resources, to be smart with our money. I want that for all of us. We've taught on that. I think it's really important. I actually think it's, it's an element of being a follower of Jesus. But here's what this guy wanted. He didn't just want financial security. He saw his ultimate security as in his finances. And when, when you're not just looking for financial security, you're looking for your ultimate security in your finances, you will always either be anxious about not having enough or anxious about it going away. And Jesus wants to bring us past that anxiety into something that is resilient and powerful, a type of security that nothing in this world will offer. But this guy could not get there. He wanted something from Jesus. He did not want to follow Jesus. He just wanted to extract something from him. So he's caught in the never-ending quest for enough. There it is at the beginning, the agenda-driven conversations, and now there's this never-ending quest for enough. And then it even goes farther. We're seeing the shape of this chapter. Verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Bold move, James and John. <laughs> what do you want me to do for you? you Gotta love Jesus' reply. He's like, oh, I'm interested, tell me more. They replied, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your glory. Now next week, our church planner in residence, Mason Florence, is gonna be teaching on this passage in detail, so I'm just gonna stick my toe in this passage. And you all should come back next week. You all should consider joining Anchor South. You all should invite your friends. You all should do all of that stuff. But what I find interesting in the context of this greater passage is that they went to Jesus alone. They didn't talk with the other disciples. They didn't say, hey, um, just so you know, we're going to be kind of making a move. And um, we want to, both of us, sit at the right and the left. And I know this might be a little contentious, so I'm just bringing it up with you so we're not doing it in secret. We're trying to be totally above board here. That's not what they do. In fact, later on in that passage... Uh, the disciples find out about what they did and they get angry and Jesus has to call them all together and reunify and give a teaching about what his mission's all about in the first place. They're going secretly. They're like, they want Jesus's glory, which is a good thing. All of us should want to encounter and experience the heaviness of God in worship to be awakened to the reality and beauty of the majesty of God. All of us should like want that and desire to experience that, but they don't just want that. They want that at the expense of other people. They said, I want to sit at your right and I want to sit at your left. Jesus, you get to be number one. Okay, we're not taking that away from you. I'm 2A though and you're two, he's 2B and that's kind of like the deal that we want to do and all the other 10 does. I mean, you've seen Jesus, you've seen Peter make a mess of it enough. He doesn't deserve it. We do, okay? We need to get it. So there you have this opportunism at the expense of others. Zooming out, you see these three things. Agenda-driven conversations, the never-ending quest for enough, opportunism at, the, opportunism at the expense of others, 
And all of this is what I call toxic adulting. Adulting is tough, the meme says. It's a lot tougher when it's toxic adulting. There's, um, I don't know, maybe, maybe you can relate to some of that. Maybe you've been the one with the agenda. Stepping into the meeting, stepping into the coffee appointment, stepping into the date, stepping into the conversation with the staff member and the conference room. It's just you two and you got an agenda. You don't really care about the person. You're just pushing that thing in. Or maybe that's happened to you and you felt used and you felt that experience. Maybe you've experienced the never-ending quest for enough, never feeling peace, always trying to get security, not recognizing that that hunt will never give you security. Maybe you have had that opportunism at the expense of others. Maybe you've experienced that where somebody cuts you out so that they can get ahead or maybe you've done it and it was never really mean or intentional and it was never really gossip but it was just kind of like saying a little sideways comment about that person so that they, that person you're talking to would know that they're kind of bad and you're kind of good and you did it really kind of kind of innocently there's um this term in hiking and mountain climbing called the green line um, the green line is where on the mountain, uh, things can actually grow. Plants can grow, trees can grow, things can grow. And um, when you get above that, the oxygen or the air is too depleted of oxygen. Uh, the soil is, is not um, rich enough. Um, the temperature is too cold for anything to grow. And so if you do see a tree, it's usually this gnarled thing that has no green in it. It's twisted and malformed and it, it looks like some kind of like evil creature out of the Hobbit or something like that. And I just have this conviction that if we live our lives toxic adulting, it's kind of like living above the green line for our soul. And we may have some type of life, but there won't be much green on our branches. And it'll be kind of twisted and contorted and kind of not growing into the potential of what God has placed within us. Jesus has become a child. Jesus invites us to become a child. It's interesting, um, when the disciples like, are shooing the kids away from Jesus, <clears throat> I mean, it makes sense. Jesus is a notable religious figure. He probably would have had the blue check mark if he was existing today. You know, he's prestigious. A lot of people like, respect him and other people are challenged by him. He's like a notable figure. And like, you don't just kind of like willy-nilly waltz up to a notable figure. This guy's like a low-grade dignitary at this point. And everybody comes and listens to him and hear these kids, they're just coming up to him, like just like waltzing on up to them. Like, don't they know they need to take a number respect him treat him a little bit more like the DMV you wait in line and you wait for your turn that's how the disciples are interacting with Jesus and Jesus says no in fact it actually says Jesus gets indignant with the disciples his 
homies, his people, his disciples. And nowhere else in the scripture is that Greek, used, Greek word used to describe Jesus's emotive reality. He gets indignant. He gets angry. He gets angry other places. But this is the only time where that's used when it comes to kids. So he, he says, no, let them come. So when he welcomes them, and then secondly, he says, don't just welcome, or don't, I'm not just welcoming them. These are actually examples of what the kingdom looks like. This is what it means to be a kingdom citizen. He flips the disciples' status quo way of operating on its head and said, you were trying to keep them from me. Now I'm pointing to them as an example of what you should be. Our world, we operate with or understand kids usually in one or two ways. One, they're angels or they're obstacles. Real talk. Angels, they're little angels. Anybody, anybody that thinks kids are just little angels needs to become more familiar with little kids. <laughs> I mean, remember, I don't know about you, but I feel like it was like every few months back when I was on Facebook when Facebook was kind of sort of cool. Sorry if you're still like loving the, face, the FB. No shame on that. Um, like I, there was like somebody would tag me in this picture of like this little baby or something like that. And it would be like this little kind of little baby just in kind of like some type of cute outfit. And it'd be like tag seven friends uh, or this is going to happen to you. It's like, who does that? Like what a terrible thing to do. A little angels. We sentimentalize children. Oftentimes, those of us that kind of are convinced that they're just little angels or just they sentiment, we sentimentalize them. When we sentimentalize them, it's often because we haven't grieved our own departure from youth. So we're constantly identifying younger children as some type of Edenic state that we can't go back to, but we long to go back to. You got some work to do if that's you. Children are much more complicated than just little angels. At the same time, they're not obstacles. You know, the type where it's like, this place is just for adults. No, you know, don't speak unless spoken to. Uh, no, 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 hun, no, stay over there. We're trying to have a, an adult conversation here. No, this is serious time. So if you could keep watching that show over there, we either treat them as obstacles or angels. Jesus does neither. He actually gives them power. He doesn't treat them as getting in the way of adult-minded progress or doesn't sentimentalize them. He gives them power. He says, this is an example of the kingdom. And he also gives them his intimacy. This is worth paying attention to. Not many people in the gospels are this physically close to Jesus. It says Jesus places his hand on them. He embraces them and he blesses them. There's a couple examples. There's Thomas touches the scars after the resurrection, the leper that Jesus touches. Not many people like get this intimately close with Jesus, but these kids do. It's almost as if Jesus was always willing for this intimate embrace, a hug, closeness, but like adults are just, Nervous about that kind of stuff. 
Jesus gives them power and he gives them intimacy. And he doesn't, frustratingly so, explain why exactly they are kingdom citizens. So we're left almost like a, as like a parable or almost like a, a riddle to ask that question for ourselves. What is it about kids? What do they have? Well, I can think of a few things. One is that they're unfamiliar with shame. You ask a kid, a three-year-old, a four-year-old, if he's an artist or if she's an artist, she'll have no problem saying, yep, I'm an artist. Check out what I can draw. And at some point, that stops. Why? Young kids, they got no problem with that. They're also like unfamiliar with social shame. Like my son, who I asked permission if I can share this story, um, he said, you want to talk about me? And I'm like, just a quick one, son. And... <laughs> A few years ago, we were at Chambers Bay. He had a push bike. This is pre-pedal, right? And, um, and uh, we're all walking around that lower loop, if you're familiar with Chambers Bay. And, and there's this, like, big, tall person with these giant headphones, like, he's 30 feet away from us. And we're kind of walking at the same pace. And Soren will go, goes up to this guy, looks up. The guy doesn't look at him at all. He's like, you want to race? And then he speeds off ahead. Soren, confused because the guy's not racing him, looks back and goes back to him and says, you want to race? The guy does not acknowledge Soren at all. <laughs> this happens like five or six more times. And I'm like, Soren, buddy, so come back. And he's just undeterred. He has no shame at all. I, I mean, I think there's like this beautiful element to that. I think it would be awkward if a 39-year-old male or one, hey, you want to race? You know, that's a little, it's a little weird. Um, but there's something there about being unfamiliar with shame. When does it go away? Like, what has shame kept you from? What community, what relationship, what secret is hiding inside of you that shame is keeping you from sharing so you stay away and farther from freedom? Kids are unconsciously dependent. Typically, if we're consciously dependent, there's anxiety and strain that sneaks in, right? You know, like you have to call dad, dad I need help again. I need some more money. Things haven't worked out. That's, that's consciously dependent. And usually there's nerves and stress and challenge if it keeps on happening. But kids are unconsciously dependent. They're just like aware of their need all the time and assuming that people are there to help them. What are you doing? Hey, can you help me with something? Where's the food? You know? Which is like, would, again, would be weird if a 45-year-old person just like, like interacted with the world in that way. But think about this. I, I sometimes joke that YouTube has replaced fathers because when I, when I, when I was in college and my car broke down, I would call my dad. But now um, we can get financial advice from a podcast or for having problems with our Mazda, just Mazda 1980. That's an old car now. <laughs> but I think the kind of the same thing has happened where we've with our with God, and so we're not conscious. We're 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 not we're not unconsciously dependent on God. 
We see God as an opportunity to gain insight from along the list of other great opportunities to gain insight. But what if we were unconsciously dependent on God? What if we just kind of would step into the day and be like, all right, God, here's my needs. How are you going to bless me? Where are you going to show up today? I think this is something of what Jesus is saying. It's like, if you want to be a kingdom citizen, you have to be like unconsciously dependent. Like just know that you you have a need for the father and the father wants to meet you there. Also familiar with justice, kids are. Paul Bloom, a Yale psychologist, says that kids uh, uh, are, are born into fairness, that it's not just a, a nurture thing, it's a nature thing, that they just see the world through fairness. And if you've ever been on a playground, you know this. That's not fair! And admittedly, oftentimes the fairness is connected to them being the object of the short end of the stick. And so they're consciously aware of when something's not fair and they're not getting what they think is fair. And they're never unbiased judges. They're just, but they're conscious of what is fair and what is unfair. Whereas adults, I mean, we've marinated too long in this world that is unfair. So we invent things like, well, the world's on, life's not fair. Kids know better. Kids know better that if life is not fair, that's life's problem. Because if there is a God that's good, that's sovereign, it sure should be fair. So kids have no problem being justice advocates for their own needs and others at a very young age because they have not heard and they have not understood that life isn't fair. They just know the truth and they're living according to it. They're also resilient with hope. I don't know if this is your story, but my kids for a long time, we'd have the advent calendars out and it was pretty obvious that there was a number of days left, but every time they were undeterred, they'd wake up and say, is it Christmas yet? And we'd point out that we took the chocolate out here yesterday and here's the, so do you see how many, let's count together, they'd lose interest when we asked them to count. They had this belief that Christmas was Tomorrow, and I mean, you could say that they are being selfish, you little sinners. Um, <laughs> but it's also hopeful. Also hopeful. Resilient with hope. Familiar with justice. Unconsciously dependent. Unfamiliar with shame. This is something I think of what Jesus is saying when he says, if you want to enter the kingdom, you got to do it like a child. My wife and I, we have these raised beds. In our backyard, classic millennials get the raised beds because you saw something on Pinterest and then you're too tied up with other things, aka Netflix, to, to do the gardening so you never eat the food that you planted but you have the raised beds. <laughs> Check that one off the millennial homeowner list. But uh, when we bought the raised beds a few years back, um, we had the option to get cedar uh, or treated wood, or the two by twelves, the standard two by twelves, and the cedar was too expensive, and the treated wood the chemicals would leach into the vegetables, making it non-organic and you know enviro and stuff. So we didn't get the treated wood; we just got the normal two by twelves. And they've seen some winters now, and they've weathered, and the inside, I'm guessing, is pretty rotted out. 
and eventually they're going to have to be replaced. And I think um, maybe you can relate. Maybe your hope is weathered. Maybe it feels like your hope is rotted, like, these, like some type of infestation of the world's narrative has snuck into your hope and chewed it out from the inside. And so you've been kind of like fully immersed in adulthood, but all the wrong types. Maybe you're hearing all of this and you're asking, where did it all go for me? When did the enchantment become disenchantment? There are a lot of things to do that can help facilitate us into this identity as children. You go to your anchor group and you can kind of lean in. You can even just asking a question, what does this mean? You can share a prayer request. You can pray audaciously for someone else that a, something would be healed or that a miracle of provision would be answered. All of that, at least practices, are ways of stepping into the type of childhood that God is asking of us, is requiring us, of, of us if we want to be his citizens. You can, uh, you know, um, come to one of our prayer and worship nights where like there's these beautiful spaces that I mean, each prayer and worship night, we create space to listen to God, to be open to what he might say and to dare to follow him in what he says and to get prayer from someone and to hear these words and in vulnerability of somebody sharing hey this is on my heart this is a verse that came to mind and this is all an aspect a, pra a practice of actually becoming like a child mm. but I think the ultimate thing that all of us need to do if we're to become like children and to allow the spirit of God to re-enchant what has become disenchanted is to simply gaze into the eyes of Jesus. Gaze into the eyes of Jesus. The man can come up right here. I don't know about you, but it kind of feels like a kind of a token religious thing to say. Gaze into the eyes of Jesus. That sounds like a real pastory thing to say. But think about it. Jesus could have appeared in a variety of ways. When he showed up on the scene, when he was born, he could have appeared, he could have, he could have bypassed birth altogether, just showed up on a war horse. He could have, he could have put on armor that was greater than anything Rome ever saw. He could have raised a fist and demonstrated his power and demonstrated how strong he was and made everyone marvel at his, his strength. He could have came as a, a king with his chest out, big old Pax Thor style and said, look at me, admire me. He was born though as a baby. He came as a baby. He came in vulnerability. God came in vulnerability. He, he, he entered into, he immersed himself into the vulnerability of a child. And as he grew, he never left vulnerability behind. He never entered into the toxic adulting stage where he's like, okay, done with vulnerable stage. Now I'm just He stayed vulnerable, vulnerable to a friend's betrayal, vulnerable to heat zapping his strength and 
thirst taking over his mouth, vulnerable to confusion of others, vulnerable to misunderstanding, vulnerable to lack of sleep, vulnerable to loneliness. Jesus, God became vulnerable, vulnerable to the point of his own death. Why? So that we might leave toxic adulting behind and become kids again. Jesus Christ became a child and experienced the vulnerability throughout his life up to his very death so that we might become his kids and not let the world set the standards for what it means to be any age, but to let Jesus set the standards. And this is a requirement for everyone that would be a kingdom citizen, that they would become like a child. Today is your opportunity to do that. Today is your opportunity to do that. We do communion every week. And you get to hear these words, Christ's body given for you, Christ's blood shed for you. I dare you to come forward with wonder. I dare you to let, let the question sit for me and then to answer it, even answer your own question for, you, for me, for me. He experienced vulnerability for me. For some of you, this might be your first time saying yes to Jesus. Come forward for communion. If you say yes, meet me in the lobby afterwards. Let's continue the conversation. I dare you to come for prayer. Either end, there's prayer stations. I dare you to come to prayer stations like a a child. However and wherever, whatever the process is, if you're going to be a kingdom citizen, you got to do it like a child, Jesus says. There's no other way around it. Resilient in hope, unfamiliar with shame, familiar with justice, unconsciously dependent. I invite you to stand as you're able. You might take a deep breath as you're standing. You might find the spirit kind of highlighting things just even right now as we're talking. It's like, oh yeah, there's the, I'm living in the pattern of a, that thing that you said, the toxic thing. Yeah, I'm doing that. So just pray with me. Maybe take a breath and Maybe open your hands if you're wanting to receive something from God. And so we pray, Spirit of the living God, come in this place. Fill this room. Re-enchant us with the power of your kingdom and the presence of your spirit. Let the words, Christ's body given for you, Christ's blood shed for you, feel like enormous gifts, feel like doors into a new realm, feel like the gift that you open and you're surprised by this beautiful thing that you didn't think was there. But it's there waiting for you, staring you in the face. And now this simple prayer, the prayer of a child, God, you're good. Help me. I don't know all the answers, but you're good. Help me. Please.